Hey everyone, it's Rima. So we are off this week working on some new stuff and we've got a rerun for y'all. But before we get to that, we'd actually love your help with something. So we know that talking about money can be hard, especially with a partner. And we are working on an episode about how that discomfort can lead people to hide things from their significant other, like credit card debt or an extra bank account, inheritances, or those shopping bags in the trunk of your car. Whether you're casually dating or in a marriage, I am so curious, what is a financial thing, a purchase or decision you've hidden from a partner? And why did you do that? We have a fancy new call in line where you can just drop us a message at 347-RING-TIU. That is 347-746-4848. You can find that number in the show notes too. Or you can also send us a voice memo to uncomfortable at marketplace.org. And in honor of all the drama, I wanted to re-air an episode from this winter about what happens when a relationship doesn't work out. All right. I'll catch y'all soon. Hey, it's Rima. How are you? Hi, Rima. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How are you doing? Pretty good. Very yeah, busy. Very you know, busy. January's divorce season, so we're working nonstop. <laughs> Wait, so for lawyers, January is really divorce season? Yes, I think this is so far my, the busiest month of my career, too. Whoa, why do you think that is? Um, New Year's resolution, probably. You know, you, you lose weight, lose your kind of bum spouse. Wow. <laughs> They're just finally like, screw it. I'm going to start anew. Yeah. I'm Rima Khres, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. So usually when people get married, it represents a union, a contract between two people to begin operating as one. Of course, that new reality affects a million decisions every day. It changes how you approach things, what you do with your money, your career decisions. And this week in our first episode of the new year, we've got two stories about what happens if or when that contract falls apart. When Beatrice Leong was 16, she took an after-school job in Queens handing out bobbleheads at Mets games. And that is where she met a boy. He was like a punk rocker. Big eyes, you know, nice smile. He seemed very genuine, you know, Hmm. um, and friendly. He also worked at the stadium. The two were pretty different. Beatrice is a self-proclaimed nerd and very chatty. And he was a bit of an introvert. But it worked. From the first moment they carried boxes of bobbleheads around Shea Stadium, they were inseparable. And maybe just a little inseparable. Their senior year, she bought a full-page ad in her yearbook professing their love. That's so sappy. And so cringeworthy now that I'm, you know, 35. I'm 36 this year, and I'm like, ah. They were at long distance all through college, kept dating in their 20s, and eventually they got married and bought an apartment in Queens together. He became a financial consultant, and Beatrice went to law school. Things felt pretty good. They'd religiously watch ESPN together, and every Sunday, Beatrice would cheer him on at his softball games. It's like having your best friend who you can also share your secrets with, be intimate with, you know. I think we had that for many years. And then at what point did things start to turn? I think after I graduated law school. I feel like everyone has intuition about their partners. Like, if something is going on, your intuition will tell you right away. And about a couple of years into their marriage, she could tell something was off. I noticed that he would just keep the phone with him, you know, his phone, attached to his hip, nonstop. 
Meaning, there was never a moment, whether he was in the bathroom or in the kitchen cooking, just constantly texting. It was weird. But she didn't say anything. At the time, she was preoccupied with her own stuff, too. She'd gotten her law degree, but failed the bar exam. Her grandparents were sick. She says she started to feel depressed, which put a strain on the marriage. I was withdrawn from him because I was going through these sort of, uh, you know, my first sort of failure in life. But that intuition kept nagging her. So one day, she logged onto their phone account. And that's when she saw that he had sent 2,000 messages to this one number. I approached him right away with this. I was like, why is there 2,000 text messages, you know, during the middle of the day when you're telling me that you can't take my calls and you're too busy? He goes, oh, that's just my coworker. She's a friend, you know? Just a friend. She was annoyed, but gave him the benefit of the doubt. Beatrice says he stopped inviting her to hang out with his softball and work friends. Meanwhile, she was busy studying to retake the bar exam. And as the two of them grew apart, it stopped feeling like they were in a relationship and more like they were roommates who slept next to each other and barely talked. It was probably the loneliest I ever felt. After a couple of months, it felt unbearable. They decided to give each other some space, and Beatrice temporarily moved back in with her parents. And we kind of set ground rules, right? We said, okay, we're not going to date other people. We're going to reflect and then come back together and, and talk about things. She was hopeful it would give them the time they needed to work things out. Then, one afternoon, while her husband was at work, Beatrice stopped by the apartment to pick up some of her things. And while she was standing in the kitchen, she saw something sitting on the table. I found a USB drive that my husband had out. Okay. And I was like, oh, what is this? This is not something that I recognize. I put it into our computer. I'm scared. And then... Pictures come up. Pictures of him in Hawaii with another woman. He told me he was on a a trip to Kansas City, right? But it turned out that, you know, that week he was actually in Hawaii with that coworker that he was texting 2,000 times. The pictures were of him and this coworker kissing on the beach, surfing together, parasailing. What was going through your head when you were looking at these pictures? Absolute devastation, I think, is, is the best way to describe it. She kept thinking, that should have been me. They actually had plans to go to Hawaii together. It was something they daydreamed about. Immediately, she called him. And his response to me really hurt me even more than the pictures itself, you know. He said to me, you're invading my privacy. What? Yeah, he said, you are invading my privacy. I was like, this is our house. This is our computer, you know. Why am I invading your privacy if you left this thing out for me to find? Beatrice felt destroyed. She knew she had been wronged, but she was conflicted on what to do, whether she should divorce him. There was a part of her that still wanted to work it out. Her husband was the only person she'd ever been with. He was trying to convince me to come back home. Then he started apologizing. You know, his first stance, which was, hey, you're invading my privacy, quickly turned to, I'm so sorry, you know, I've made a huge mistake. Hmm. This person doesn't mean anything to me. For months, they went back and forth, and Beatrice sought advice from everyone. She would bring up her cheating husband at the dentist office while getting a manicure. She even asked strangers on Reddit what to do. My mother said, oh, forgive him. You know, men, men cheat sometimes. Forgive him. And my dad said, no, don't forgive him. If he was so horrible to you in a, in a time that you were struggling, what makes you think that he's going to be any better when you're older? 
At one point, her dad dragged her to see a divorce lawyer. She remembers the attorney being especially cold. Even though she and her husband had been together for more than a decade, they'd only been married for three years. So the lawyer was like, Oh, it's a short marriage. No children. Get, you have to get over the emotional part. It's an easy one, two, three, uncontested divorce. She knew their long romance and the fact that he cheated probably wouldn't be relevant in the eyes of the law. But she wanted her lawyer to care. How can an advocate who's supposed to be on my side just tell me that all this stuff is irrelevant? My whole life was irrelevant. During this period of marriage limbo, Beatrice passed the bar exam. And then she finally comes to a decision. She wants a divorce. And it was at that point she thought, You know what? I'm ready to go back into the job market. Why don't I just look for a job as, you know, a divorce lawyer? So I want to be able to know, um, you know, what I'm getting myself into, what I have to lose, what my rights are. Besides, she thinks I could do a hell of a lot better than that one lawyer. She lands a job at a family law practice. And as she learns more about divorce law, she realizes the longer you're married, the more financial risk you could face in a divorce. And sure, he may be the breadwinner now, but in a few years, she could out-earn him. The state views two married people as one entity, okay? If I have my own business as a lawyer, right, and I'm, uh, you know, successful multimillionaire, he takes a portion of that. So basically, as long as she's with him? The more he has rights to my savings, to my retirement, and if he creates debts, you know, I would be responsible for his debts as well. But on the flip side, that didn't necessarily mean Beatrice should divorce her husband right away. She knew that since she had gotten her law degree during their marriage, her husband could claim a right to her future earning potential. But through her research, she discovered that a law in New York was about to change in her favor that would essentially negate her husband's claim to any future salary. So I purposely delayed any divorce filings so that I would have the new date and that he could not be able to get my, my law degree and my law license. So you purposefully dragged it out, but you didn't tell him why? Yes. How long did you delay it for? I delayed it for two years. Oh, wow. So you were like playing a game, essentially. <laughs> yes. I, well, playing a strategy, right? Because in all divorce yeah. cases, it's a strategy because you have to make sure your client, you know, having the better outcome, right? And in this case, my client was me. And it was at that point Beatrice decided not only was she going to file for divorce, she was going to represent herself. Do you remember the day that you filed for your divorce? I fill up paperwork every single day for people, and it's like routine. I'm like, oh, do, 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 you know, John Smith versus Jane Smith, whatever. But filling out your own paperwork is like the weirdest thing, you know? I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm typing my name. I'm typing Beatrice Leon. I'm typing it out as the plaintiff, you know? It's like, I remember taking like hours to do. And even as she was staring at the screen that represented the death of her marriage, she had a moment of doubt. Oh, should I forgive him? Yeah, this is sort of his first mistake that he's ever made in all these years together, right? But then when I typed my name in, I, I was like, okay, this is it. It was done. Well, sort of. Now they had to actually figure out the terms of the divorce. They decided to keep their separate bank accounts, but she'd get a portion of his retirement account, and they'd sell their apartment and split their earnings. So was it pretty, like, amicable then? No, it was not amicable. He started doing things that I did not like. He started throwing away all my furniture. 
She says he threw out her $3,000 white leather sectional, and while they were negotiating the terms, he cut her off from his health insurance and told her to communicate only through his lawyer. After she filed, the divorce took about a year to finalize. Today, she works for a boutique law firm in Manhattan and says her divorce went relatively smoothly compared to some of her clients. And in basically all cases, divorce is expensive. A simple uncontested one might cost about three grand. But if it goes to court, Beatrice's retainer, a fee paid up front, can range anywhere from 20 to 50 grand. Can I ask what's Mm -hmm. the most expensive case you've worked on? Probably in the range of like a million um, million dollars in, in fees. The longer it takes for a couple to agree to the terms of a divorce, the more expensive it gets. Beatrice says she's seen clients wipe out their kids' college savings and their retirement accounts, just fighting over who gets what. They dip into savings accounts. They take loans from family. They take HELOCs, like home equity lines, against their property. Financially, it's very devastating. And it can get ugly. This one guy told her that he'd rather spend his savings fighting his wife than handing over the money to her. It's all incredibly tragic. You know, the idea of spending years investing emotional energy and time into a person, building a home with them, sharing vulnerabilities and ambitions, only for all of it to come down to money. This is kind of like a heady question, but what do you think it says about us as humans that we can turn around and, like, try to be really spiteful towards someone that we once thought we were going to build a life with? I think it's, it's. I think it's um, expected actually, because in order to have that amount of hate, you have to have that amount of love, right? Coming up after the break, one couple tries to make a plan for the future, in case they ever do hate each other. Erin Lowry and her boyfriend Joe were out walking their dog one evening when Erin asked this question that felt super out of left field. I just remember saying that I thought prenups were a good idea. What did you think? When you want to talk about something big, like you'll just like (laughs) sprinkle it in there a little bit. You know, we're out just walking, having a conversation, and then you're just like, what do you think about prenups? So a prenuptial agreement, or a prenup, is basically an agreement between an engaged couple about who would get what if things don't work out, how all the money and assets get divided. In that moment, Joe says he just felt confused. They had been together since college and were just starting to talk about marriage. But he didn't think people like them got prenups. He's a high school social studies teacher, and Aaron is a writer. Probably the only time that I had heard a prenup was... You know, like celebrities getting them and like when there's just like massive amounts of money, you know, in a marriage. Meanwhile, Aaron felt like pretty much everyone should get a prenup. So my feeling on a prenup is that there is already laws and rules in place of how to, you know, split up assets if you were to get divorced. So I would prefer to be in control of that situation as opposed to letting the state of New York decide for me. Erin is a planner. She's always ready for the worst-case scenario. She sleeps with a baseball bat next to her bed, and when she leaves for an international trip, she turns to her partner and says stuff like, 
hey, just in case something happens, here is where I keep my will. It's in a fireproof safe. Meanwhile, Joe, he prefers living in the moment. I don't think that far down the line. In my mind, and this is maybe my brain just trying to save me, just say, listen, it's not going to become a problem. You're not going to let this become a problem. Joe is also a bit more emotional, like he was the first to profess his love. I just didn't know how and when to say it or like if it should Mm -hmm. come out. And then I was just like, I fucking love you. So when Aaron brought up the prenup, it kind of freaked Joe out. The second thought that came to my mind was like, all right, we're not even engaged yet. And, you know, we're now having a conversation about what's going to happen if we get divorced. It's not that I think we're going to get divorced. Just like I don't think our apartment's going to burn down, but I still have renter's insurance. After that initial conversation, Joe and Aaron agreed to put the topic on hold. After all, they weren't even engaged. But about a year later, Joe proposed. Then they celebrated. And then they each hired their own attorney and started drafting a prenup. Prenups are all about how the finances get figured out in a divorce, everything from debts to retirement. But every now and then, they include some pretty wild clauses, like financial penalties for cheating or protecting intellectual property, you know, like a cool idea for an app. Basically, there's a lot to figure out. The way Aaron and Joe approached it was every few weeks, they'd sit on their couch and talk through the terms of the agreement. If things got too tense, they'd walk away or watch TV. The biggest point of contention was over Aaron's money. Aaron makes more money than Joe and would be coming into the marriage not only with personal investments, but her own business. She's a personal finance writer and runs a brand called Broke Millennial. Because I don't work a traditional job, it made me nervous Mm -hmm. to think about how things would get split and divided in a way that might seem okay under the eyes of state law based on people who work two traditional jobs. But I'm self-employed, so I wanted protection. As a writer, Erin has two books out and one on the way. And she didn't want Joe's lawyers to claim that because the work was created during the marriage, he's entitled to a portion of those royalties indefinitely. I started to get very defensive and territorial at the idea of what would happen after, which I think I fundamentally had the knee-jerk reaction of, it's mine, and what gives you the right? Well, to Joe, it felt like he had a right to some of those royalties, because he's a big reason she's able to devote so much time to her business. When she's busy writing, he runs the household, cooks dinner, walks the dog, and is constantly hyping her up. This conversation was happening while this was, like, while I was doing that emotional support. So so I think it was kind of like, well, look what I'm doing. I'm doing all these things for you to write your book. Joe also argued that he's a character in a lot of her writing, since Aaron broadcasts a lot of her personal life. You know, so much of my likeness is being used in your blog and in, in, in your writing. And it's like, I almost felt like, well, it's mine, too. But Aaron explained that even though the royalties are just a portion of her earnings right now, there may be a time when that's all she's making. So if I'm not coming after your paycheck, is it mm-hmm. fair for you to be coming for mine? So in the end, they decided what's earned during the marriage, including royalties, would be split 50-50. But anything earned after a divorce... They're on their own. The thing is, with prenups, everything is theoretical. The intangible future assets, the potential children, the supposed dreadful second wife. You have to map out an unpredictable and probably very sad future. Like, at one point, they talked about the hypothetical of inheriting money. Not that they're even expecting that, but just the thought of it led to conversations like this. Well... 
If I were to inherit money and that money got used to purchase a house, I would never allow you to be living in that house if we got divorced. The idea of some other woman living in this house with you that my parents' money helped to buy, oof, I still, that just riles me up. I think that's the only time I got emotional, like truly emotional, Yeah, you felt a certain way about that, yeah. In the end, they agreed that if either of them got an inheritance and used it to buy, say, a car or a house, the percentage of whatever they contributed would go back to the person who inherited the money. Now, if we had children, that might change this entire conversation. Yeah. That could change the whole thing. And if that happens, they plan to update their agreement and get a postnup. I feel like it must have been really weird and maybe even surreal, like sitting down with someone you love, you know, sort of imagining the details of a future without them. Yeah, and what's that, yours that's and what's painful. Theirs. That's, that's why I think I had such a reaction to it all so often was like, and like, and we, you know, even when we talk about it, so I'm like, this is like, why, why are we talking about this? This is, this is a world in which we have gotten divorced and we're no longer loving each other and with each other. Ultimately, crafting the prenup costs them about $4,000 in lawyer's fees. For some couples, this whole process can end up exposing pretty different values and visions of the relationship. And sometimes it's irreconcilable. But for Joe and Aaron, they're thankful it forced them to have really difficult money conversations early on. So I'll be honest, before talking with them, I didn't know much about prenups, but my impression of them were not great. They felt like a bad omen or proof that two people don't truly love each other. But I don't know. Aaron and Joe are convincing. I think that myself in a divorce situation would not be the best version of Aaron. And I thought, hey, this is a way that if the worst were to happen, we've made decisions when we're at this apex of our love where we're going to be kind and generous to each other. Right. And we and we did we did have arguments about this, but it's like, well, let's have these many arguments now while we're still totally in love. (laughs) They've been married now for about a year, and there's a copy of the prenup tucked away in that fireproof safe. A lovingly crafted plan for the future they hope they'll never need. All right, that's all for this week's show, but we want to keep exploring the topic of marriage and money throughout this year. How has money worked or not worked in your marriage? You can share your stories with us at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. By the way, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our newsletter. You can sign up for that at marketplace.org slash newsletters. This is Uncomfortable is me, Rima Hreis, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Daisy Palacios. Our intern is Daniel Martinez. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Editing by Sarah Kramer with help this week from Eliza Mills. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. And Deb Clark is the senior vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right. Catch y'all next week.